Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Over in Israel today, uh, on the West Bank in Hebron, there is an oak tree. And this tree is thought to be thousands of years old. And in recent years, the tree appeared to be dying. And, and so it, it's been even propped up with some cement and iron rods. And, and uh, back in 1996, it looked like it was completely dead. And then the next year, there were a couple of shoots that came up out of the ground, um, out of that root system. Uh, one day, the, the withered part of the tree collapsed, and, and uh, it led to speculations that the tree was completely dead. And, and according to uh, one tradition, that would be a sign then of the end of the world coming as well. Um, however, the appearance of new life then the next year uh, gave believers new hope that the world could yet still be pardoned. So what is that tree that holds such uh, intrigue? It, it, it's thought to be one of the oaks of memory. Now maybe you've heard of that, maybe you don't have an idea at all what that's about. It's one of the trees then that the Old Testament patriarch Abraham was sitting near when there were three men that visited him in the heat of the day and these three men were actually two angels and the Lord himself in human form. And today we're going to look at one of the fascinating texts in the Old Testament that we sometimes call these theophanies, that, that's an appearance of God in the form of man. And not everybody gets a visit like that and thus the fascination with that spot where it was thought to have taken place. Uh, there are a couple of very interesting subjects that were covered in the early conversation between God and Abraham that day under the oak tree. And, and one of them was the Lord telling Abraham that his, his promise to him that he'd made before uh, of he and Sarah one day having a son was still valid. And that by next year it was going to happen. And Sarah was actually inside the tent at the time. And she overheard it, and she laughed out loud. And uh, she was now 90 years old. However, it was less than a year later that that prediction did come true and that she had a son. And that's a whole other story. We're not going to focus on that today. But the other subject that God addressed that day, after Abraham had, had treated his surprise guests to a generous meal, and they were ready to leave, the other subject was the fate of two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham rose from the shade with the men as, as they were going to walk away, and he was sending them off. And then the Lord talked to him privately and brings up this subject. And that's found in uh, Genesis chapter 18. And so I invite you to look with me at that as, as we read together. Uh, Genesis 18, beginning with verse 20. And would you stand in reverence to God's word as I read? <clears throat> Genesis 18, begins verse 20. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. 
I will go down and see whether they have done entirely as the outcry which has come to me indicates, and if not, I will know. And then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham approached and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose that there are 50 righteous people within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And so the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the entire place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am only dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the entire city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And he spoke to them, him yet again and said, Suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it even if I find 30 there. And he said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of 20. And then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of 10. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, as we meditate on this passage of Scripture and we get this glimpse into this amazing visit that uh, you had with Abraham and the conversation that happened there, Lord, uh, I pray that you teach us uh, more about prayer and about our relationship with you and about your heart for people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, you and I, unless we live alone and work from home, end up having conversations every day. Um, and, and we often uh, have small talk, you might say, with folks about various subjects, you know, like the weather or sports or food or the various activities we've been involved in. However, the conversation that took place there at the Oaks of Memory was not a matter of mere small talk. It was deeply serious, and the outcome of it could not be more serious. And, and the Lord God starts the conversation then by bringing up the subject, the subject of the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and apparently there was stuff going on in Sodom that so concerned people that they were crying out to God about it. And the Lord knew about it and described it as sin that, depending on the translation you read, it described it as heavy, severe, exceedingly grave, or, or grievous. So just what was this that so grieved the heart of God? And before I answer that here, have you ever just stopped to think about um, what it must be like to be you know, God up in heaven looking down on the earth um, looking from the heavens and seeing people sinning all over the earth, you would think it must get rather discouraging for him. But there are apparently people and places that at times are exceedingly grievous to him. And, and the folks of Sodom and Gomorrah were an example of this. 
Well, what was this at Sodom and Gomorrah that was so grievous to God? Well, see, I'm just going to touch on this today as we're going to pick it up further next week. And, and we look at chapter 19 next week. Um, those are two chapters that are part of our pericope um, schedule texts for those two weeks. The, the sin of Sodom mentioned um, here is, is mentioned other places in Scripture, at least three other places. Um, and, and in Ezekiel chapter 16, uh, 49 and 50 there, it explains it a bit um, by really describing three types of sins of Sodom. One of them was unconcerned for and even uh, definite oppression of the poor and the needy, while meanwhile people were living then in, in, with great prosperity. Along with that, there, there was a real pride or haughtiness in their attitudes toward others, and it says that they were committing abominations. And the three go together then to reflect really an absolutely self-centered, self-indulgent people. And according to the New Testament, that self-indulgent involved also then sexual perversion. Second Peter chapter 2 describes it as, as perverted conduct or corrupt passion. In the book of Jude in the New Testament, it says that they went after strange flesh. Now, as I mentioned, uh, we will clarify more of that as we look at chapter 19 next week. But suffice it to say for now that most of the folks of Sodom lived really with a total disregard of God and of his word. And thus they didn't care of God's design for proper use of their bodies. And, and many instead did was what was even unnatural and perverted. And, and they were well known for that, even all over. A Abraham's knew of, of that. That was the reputation of the, of the city. And so the conversation that happened then at the Oaks of Mamre that day was of this outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah. The participants in that conversation were Abraham then talking with God. God who was there in the form of a human. And after God brought up the subject then of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham responded and he had some questions of God. And as, as you read through that, I'm struck by the comfortableness and the frankness of this conversation that took place there. And that really is as it should be for a believer, a follower of God, that there would be open communication regularly going on with God. That's what prayer is. I like one definition we have in our Lutheran Catechism. It just describes prayer as talking to God silently or out loud, but from our hearts. And one reason to talk to God is out of heart, heart concern for other people. And Abraham such, had such a concern for his nephew Lot. And when, at God's instructions years before, Abraham had left Haran, and, and he didn't have any children of his own, he and Sarah had taken along their nephew Lot. And, and in the years that followed, then Abraham had grown rich, and his flocks had multiplied, and his herds had, and, and so had lots. And, and it got so that they needed to split up, um, spread out so that their sheep and their cattle had enough grazing land. And they did so. And so now then it was 24 years after leaving Haran, and Lot had settled down in the valley and in the city of Sodom. Abraham knew the reputation of that city, and he was concerned for his nephew as you and I would be concerned for our relatives that end up in very worldly surroundings. Let's look at the reason for that conversation that took place there then. We, what we see here is 
Abraham interceding for his nephew's family and really for the whole city of Sodom. Now, what does it mean to intercede? It's to go between. And so here is Abraham for a time, you might say, stepping in between Almighty God and those upon whom God would bring judgment. And he is asking God to instead show mercy. And you know, we do that too. Don't we even, when we pray for somebody, maybe somebody that's encountering an illness or some other difficulty, and we intercede for them. We, we step in between and we say, Lord, won't you please spare them? Won't you please help them? Abraham knows that God would, would be perfectly just in, in bringing judgment on Sodom, but, but he's bothered about something, though. He's bothered that the whole city might get that judgment and they wouldn't all deserve it equally. And so he kind of pries into the decision-making process of a just and a holy God here, asking, well, how many righteous folks are needed to spare the city? Would you spare it if there are 50 righteous? And I read those verses 24 and following again here as we think about what took place here in that conversation. So Abraham says, so suppose there are 50 righteous within the city? Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are there? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike? Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Rather bold talk, isn't it? With God there as he tries to understand the heart of a God who is just and holy and merciful. And the Lord's response in verse 26, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I would spare the entire place on their account. And so as I already read here, Abraham then goes from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. And each time, God answers that he would not destroy the city if there were even 50 or 40 or 30 or 20 or even 10 righteous. And I think at this point, we, we need to pause then and, and make sure we understand some terms here. Just who are the wicked and the righteous? We know that on the one hand, in the Bible, in Romans chapter 3, for instance, it tells us that there is none righteous, not even one. All humankind have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. And so it seems that both Abraham and God here must be going by a different definition of righteous than being sinless or perfect. Or, or else that conversation wouldn't have even made sense to either of them. It's interesting that both the Old and the New Testaments refer to Abraham and Lot as righteous men, even though it also points out in Scripture both of their foolish sins. Well, I think we have a clue to understanding this better in, in Genesis chapter 15, and that's referenced in, in Romans chapter 4 as well, I'm going to just mention that here. In Genesis 15, 6, it says, Then Abraham believed in the Lord, and he, that is God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. 
Romans chapter 4, explaining how people in the Old Testament were saved before Jesus came on the scene, goes on to say this, And what then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, and, he, and what he has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's how it was that there were righteous people in the Old Testament and in the New. They believed God's word, including God's word in the Old Testament that promised that a savior from sin would come, and would come even through the bloodline of Abraham. And that savior that was revealed in the New Testament then is Jesus Christ. And so people's faith in him, in him the righteous one, would be credited to their account. And it's the same for you and I today as well. If we will admit our unrighteousness, admit our sins and our rebellion against God, and we despair of earning heaven based on any goodness in us at all, if we'll give up on that and trust then in the merits of Christ, then we are saved. And Jesus' righteousness is credited over to our account. It's like if somebody put $1,000 in the bank for you in your name, then it's now yours. It's been credited to your account, even though you didn't do anything to deserve it. And so when Abraham was praying for the city of Sodom, and we find out next week then that God spared Lot, it wasn't because Lot was sinless, or even because he was a better sinner than most of the residents there. It's that Lot, too, was a sinner who believed in God and who listened to his word, including the promise of him sending a Savior one day. And so his personal faith in God was then credited to him, and he's called one of the righteous. The righteous aren't better than any other sinners. They are only repentant sinners. They're, they're ones that seek to live then upright lives lives of integrity and honesty with God, living then in daily repentance and faith. On the other hand, then, you cannot be, expect to be called righteous by God if you don't even believe he exists, or, or if you refuse to listen to his word. Then there is no hope for you if you won't humble yourself before your creator and hear what he has to say is the truth. And if that's the case, then you're in the other category. You're the wicked. And it was the wicked that had no time for God that dominated the city of Sodom. Well, now we understand then why Abraham pursued this conversation with God. It was out of concern for his nephew and family. And it was because he did understand this about the righteous and the wicked. Now we need to try to understand something else that's more complicated, really. The basis for this conversation was, was trying to understand also then, when is it that God's judgment overrides his mercy, or vice versa? Think about it. In light, for instance, of the fact that the righteous often live among the wicked, and in light of sometimes the wicked turning and becoming believers, and becoming part of the righteous. How does God decide upon whom to bring judgment and when to bring it? 
That is the thing that we so much try to figure out. And I appreciate this perspective given in a commentary. I share this quote. The Lord's actions cannot be reduced to a simple formula or precedent. In other words, we can't say, well, do these things in this order, and then he'll guarantee to be merciful to them. Or we can't say, well, he did this for them, so he'll do it just like that for somebody else. The Lord's actions can't be reduced to a simple formula or precedent. He goes on to say, we humans have no legitimate vantage point from which to govern the moral universe. End quote. We can say this. God is God, and he always does what is just and right. And the finite can never fully understand the infinite. And so just God, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and so just who should, should God, or, or when would he bring judgment? We can't fully understand. And yet there is something that we can learn from this passage. And we see here then a God of both mercy and justice. And we today too have such a merciful and just God who one who for the sake of even ten would spare a whole city longer and I believe then also would use the ten to point some others to him. Is it not possible that God has been sparing our land for the sake of the righteous, for the sake of those who do believe in him and look to his word and his son? At what point might he say, well, enough? and quit withholding his judgment? Is he already partially doing so? Those are questions I can't answer. But it is certainly right and good for us to pray, and to pray for God's mercy. And as I look at this text, there's just a couple other things I want to point out. One is this, the important awareness that I see in this conversation, and that is of the unworthiness of the interceder. Verse 30 and 32 there, Abraham, as he asks again and again, he, he's saying, oh, may the Lord not be angry as I ask this one more thing. He's quite aware. This is not a conversation between equals. He is approaching Almighty God, who is perfectly holy and just. And you and I ought always to humble ourselves before him as well. And as we intercede, we, we should always be aware of our own unworthiness as an interceder. And, and yet the privilege that we have of being one who knows the Lord and who can bring our concerns to him at any time. What happened after this conversation? Next week. I invite you to be here. Stay tuned for the rest of the story. And we see God's visit to Sodom. Lord sending two angels on an assignment to go and find out if there are even ten righteous. As we close here today, as we think of our own nation and praying for our nation, I can't help but think of the words of President Abraham Lincoln that, that when he declared National Day of Prayer back in 1863 at the end of the Civil War, and it's so relevant to our national situation even today, I'm going to read just a part of it here and I quote, he said, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. 
We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no nation, no, no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us, and we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all of these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that has made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring with the views of the Senate, he says, I do by this my proclamation designate and set apart Thursday the 30th day of April 1863 as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Let us pray. Lord God, we humble ourselves before you, the awesome creator of the universe, the one who has all power still in your hands, who controls the forces of nature all around us, Lord, and, and we recognize that we are dependent on you for all things. We thank you for your answers to prayer and giving us rain in recent weeks. We pray that you would continue to provide what's needed that way. But Lord, we are reminded today that so easily we are, uh, think we are self-sufficient and we forget the one that we need to go to for all things. And, and Lord, we see things are in the world around us changing. We see a country that, according to our definitions today, many of, of those around us are the wicked. They have no time for you no interest in hearing your word. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to each examine our own hearts and see if that is true. And Lord, I thank you though that um, we can be called the righteous even though we don't deserve that, even though we know we are sinners. But Lord, as you work in our hearts, your Holy Spirit shows us our sin and you help us to humble ourselves before you and ask your forgiveness and your power to change, you, you bring that, Lord. And you help us to live in a daily relationship with you. And we give you thanks for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would be at work in each of our hearts and lives. And, and there are those around us in our community, in our neighborhood, that don't know you. Lord, help us that we would be willing to reach out to them in love and, and that we would point them to you. Lord, there are those uh, that are relatives and people we know and love who are walking away from you. We pray that you would turn their hearts uh, to you. And, Lord, that you'd use us in some way. But, Lord, help us to live in daily repentance and faith. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.